welcome. Yes, indeed. Uh, week two, uh, Pastor 411, if you are with us last week, you recall that we, uh, we started talking about, uh, instead of having sort of the typical type of sermon that we would have at this part of the service, we, we've received questions from the congregation, from the community, and we brought some people in this year, uh, some special guests, to help us answer some questions that people tend to have. Uh, last week, we had Dr. Randall Rouser here with us, who is a professor at Taylor Seminary. And this week, we have another professor from the seminary with us uh, who is going to be helping us answer some questions relating to the Old Testament. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about the New Testament and not always diving into the Old Testament too much, but there were a number of questions that, uh, that were of that subject matter. So I thought, why not bring in an expert in the field to uh, talk to us about that? So we do have the privilege today of having with us Dr. Jerry Shepard, who uh, can come join me on the platform if you would please. Uh, Jerry is familiar to many of us here. He uh, um, has been on our platform a number of times, sharing from God's Word and teaching over the years. He is a uh, associate professor of Old Testament studies at seminary, uh, Taylor Seminary. He's been there for about, I think, 21 years. He's been teaching there in that capacity, uh, written many commentaries, articles, uh, journals, and, um, and also has a wonderful blog. You're very active on Facebook as well. I've noticed. And uh, so if you're not following Jerry yet but would like to, uh, you definitely can do so uh, online there. Uh, Jerry, what is, uh, if somebody wanted to follow you on Facebook, I imagine they need to search for your name. But you, you have a proper blog too, though, don't you? Yes. And what, how would they find you on that? Well, the blog has a long handle. It's oh, okay. The recapitulator.com. Okay. <laughs> so this is where we have a prize for who can spell capitulator. <laughs> so um, they can probably email you too and just and find yes, you on yeah, Facebook sure. there too yeah, and connect yeah. that way. So we're glad yeah. to have you with us. Uh, Luke mentioned this next weekend is a busy weekend, but actually the current weekend has been busy for you as well because yesterday was uh, a graduation ceremony for Taylor Seminary again. Uh, how many... Did I see online that we're getting close to 50, isn't it? How many graduation service or ceremonies have oh, they had? Uh, it's I think up it's there. been about uh, close to 40, actually. 40, sorry, 40, 40. close to yeah, 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've been to almost half of those, I guess. Uh, yeah. How uh, many have you been to? Actually, actually, that's uh, somewhat old information. Oh, okay. It's uh, <laughs> more like 26 years now. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I had five more years. It's and like I made that slide five years ago. in the process. <laughs> making you older as well. It's even quite a few of those. Wonderful. We're glad to have you with us here today. Uh, I myself have uh, sat under Jerry's teaching for a number of years, and there's one thing that he was kind of, I don't want to say infamous, but it's getting close to infamous for saying. He would always remind us that we look at the Scripture, we open the Bible, and pretty close to three-quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament. And yet we spend so much time in the New Testament that there's a bit of a misbalance that happens there. So I know that was one of your, your things you like to emphasize, and that's where you have dedicated your life and your, your study to. So that's why I wanted to have you here today. And that actually relates to one of the first questions that we wanted to talk about today. Because we spend so much time talking about Jesus in the New Testament, which isn't wrong. Don't hear me saying that. Uh, very important, very appropriate. And yet there is so much other content that exists uh, prior to, uh, to those books that we have in Scripture. So here's a question kind of related to that, that I think we should start off with. Uh, we read in Scripture that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have a lot of emphasis upon that, and rightfully so. But why then, if that is the core emphasis, why should we study the Old Testament? What, how does that relate? How does that fit together? And I know you're going to love answering this one, because I've heard uh, you talk about it in class. Yes, I think so. Uh, so uh, uh, actually, I'm going to start off um, answering this question 
with a couple of uh, quotations from uh, Fleming Rutledge. I've mentioned uh, her before in some uh, sermons that I have uh, preached here at West Meadows. And um, she's actually, uh, um, how do I say this kindly? She's an old uh, Anglican priest. Uh, she's nearly 80, she probably is 80 years old by, by now, I think. And uh, she wrote a book a couple of years, several years ago, entitled uh, uh, The Death of uh, Jesus Christ, um, or, or The Crucifixion, uh, The Death of Jesus Christ, uh, The Meaning of That Death. And um, a couple of very interesting quotes in that book, I think, that uh, may begin to answer the question uh, that uh, Mark just posed here. Uh, here's one of them. A preacher on the radio observed that the New Testament tells us almost nothing about what went on in Jesus' mind. Then he said, if you want to know what went on in Jesus' mind, read the Old Testament. That is a very simple way of stating what every biblical scholar knows, but seldom says. We tend to forget that what we call the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus, Paul, and the earliest Christians had. Not only so, but the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms were known to them by heart in a fashion that we today can scarcely imagine. There are many things that we do not know about Jesus, but of this we can be sure. His mind and heart were shaped by intimate, continuous interaction with the Scriptures. If we are to have the mind of Christ, we need to know the Old Testament. Very interesting way of uh, simply uh, saying here that uh, if you want to uh, resurrect those old bracelets that you had, uh, WWJD, uh, what would Jesus do? Uh, the answer is he would read the Old Testament. Uh, he would memorize it. He would study it. He would live it and have it inside of him. And then um, a second quotation from Rutledge uh, goes like this. The importance of what Christians know as the Old Testament can hardly be overstated. The Hebrew scriptures were mined by the apostolic authors as they proclaimed the gospel of the cross and resurrection. The Old Testament is not just a source of further information for the New Testament or an interesting sideshow attached to it or even the indispensable prelude to it. The New Testament will not work without the Old Testament. That's a very uh, striking way of simply um, saying that in order to really understand what the New Testament is about, you have to have a pretty good grasp of the Old Testament. Uh, to understand who Jesus is, you need to uh, see him as the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams that the Old Testament saints had as they put their faith in God and looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. So you can't understand Jesus as the Messiah if you don't know the Old Testament. Uh, I know I, um, Dr. Sid Page, who was once a member here and member here for many years, um, he and I always had some friendly banter, and I reminded him that I taught um, the Bible, and he taught the appendix to the Bible uh, in, in, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, the, uh, with the New Testament. So um, anyway, that's just a, 
a way to, to, to get into some of this. Let me even turn that um, question around a little bit. Uh, a professor of Old Testament at Fuller Seminary, his name is John Golden Gay, and he wrote a book a couple of years ago, and this is uh, the title. Um, what, uh, I'm sorry, actually I don't have the title in front of me, but, but uh, uh, the title is, uh, Do We Need the New Testament? Um, and then a subtitle, subtitle of that would be Letting the Old Testament Speak on Its Own. And his very interesting thesis in that book, which I pretty much uh, subscribe to to, 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 a, to a large extent, not completely, but um, in essence his thesis is that the New Testament really doesn't teach us anything that is not already in the Old Testament. And that the what is so important about the New Testament is that now that revelation that we already have in the Old Testament in words of the Torah and the historical books and the prophets and the Psalms, now that revelation is embodied in Jesus. It's incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus did not come to give us a different revelation or even a new revelation. He came to fulfill what was already there. Anyway, I'll, yeah, I'll stop there for a second. Fantastic. Those are it's a great reminders of, of his words himself. Um, sometimes we forget that the, uh, the Jesus and the apostles didn't have the New Testament. They were kind of living and writing <laughs> yes. the New Testament yeah. at that yeah. time that we had the benefit of. And so that's a, that's a great reminder. Now, there's a bit of a follow-up question to this. Because yeah. while we, we may understand and we may agree that that there's nothing necessarily new in the New Testament, that it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, yet the language and the events and some of the styles of writings and the genres are not necessarily as accessible as the way that we read the New Testament. And so sometimes while there's a belief and an appreciation for it, there's a hard time to enter into it. Mm -hmm. So how, any suggestions, any tips on how somebody who wanted to dive more into the Old Testament could do so? Uh, well, I, I've got about three tips. Um, first of all, you can take classes with me at Taylor Seminary. Good um, plug. Good plug. And uh, that would contribute <laughs> to my uh, retirement fund, perhaps, as coming, coming down, the, down the road here. Uh, the second one uh, would be that, um, and, and I'm going to be a, a bit facetious here, I guess, in a way, but I remember when I was a boy growing up in Sunday school, uh, one of our teachers read us a poem about how we can become familiar with the Bible. And the poem went like this, read, 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 read. Notice how those two lines rhyme. And uh, so uh, I think, I, I, I mean, seriously, uh, to, to be very frank about it, there is no substitute for reading an acquaintance. Um, just got to dig in there. And uh, sometimes I, I know uh, uh, if you've got a Bible reading plan, somewhere around February or March, you hit Leviticus, and all of a sudden that Bible reading plan just goes out the window. But uh, stick with it. Uh, the third thing is um, you do need a guide. And um, if I can uh, suggest uh, a good guide, uh, I think the um, New International Version application commentaries are a very good entry point. Uh, the, those commentaries 
that they're all done by fantastic scholars, uh, but uh, they have three sections in them. Uh, one section tries to explain the text. Another section tries to sort of bridge between the ancient context and our context. And the third section really tries to take what you have there and, and give some, some flesh to it in terms of how we can live that out in our day. So um, a good guide, I think, is necessary and that one particular set, uh, the NIV application commentary, or sometimes we call it uh, NIVAC, that's a good way to get into it. Good, thank you for that. And uh, actually, I have that series on my shel well, shelves. It's a long series, it takes up two shelves. I saw it. Uh, that's <laughs> oh, why I suggested it, because they could always come to you and borrow it. Swing by one. my office, have a look at it. And Luke <laughs> saw my excitement last week when volume two of Psalms finally arrived. Yes, exactly. I don't know how many years we we're waiting for that. I know. So they're still, they're still writing that. Yeah. It's almost, I think there's one book left. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah. Complete. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, you're right. It, it's a great, a great uh, commentary series that it breaks into different application mm -hmm. points. And, Good. Well, thank you for that. Sure. And uh, and good plug for for Taylor. Yeah. At the same, <laughs> same time. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, let's get into um, uh, another question here, and and kind of a main question, one that I personally am really looking forward to unpacking a bit. Not because I think there is one satisfiable answer to this question, but it, it's one that I think we need to wrestle with, and uh, and I, I'm hoping that uh, you can give us some insight on how we can enter into this very challenging topic, one that people within the congregation have shared with me in the past, uh, one that I have personally heard uh, in the community as I meet people who are a little unsure of the church and the Christian faith, um, and one that was actually in Dr. Randall Rouser's, one of his books that I read a couple years back, and I was going to ask him last week, but I thought, no, I got Jerry coming this week, so we'll talk to you about it this week. And here, here's the question. In the Old Testament, God condones wars and killing innocent people. How does that fit with the New Testament character of God? It, it, can, it can seem like those things are in conflict with each other. Yeah. And this is a challenge when people who don't understand the Christian faith or, or even some of those who are, who are into it, um, they, they wrestle with some of the things they read in the Old Testament because it's, it's very different and very difficult mm. at times. Indeed. How can you help us with that? Well, um, to start off with, what I'm going to do here, uh, and I've, Mark and I have talked about this, is that I'm going to read you a greatly reduced uh, portion of, my of a blog post I wrote um, oh, about four or five years ago. And the, um, the blog post enti uh, was entitled something like, uh, uh, How Can We uh, Tell the Difference Between the God of Love and the God of Wrath? Um, I, I just introduced the idea that we in the evangelical church have a problem. Um, many passages seem to describe a God of love. Other passages seem to describe a God of wrath. So uh, Mark and I are going to go back and forth here uh, reading some passages. So we're going to start off with the, what I call group one. And group one talks about the love of God. Okay, so that's what we're going to do right now. So just read some slides here. Group one, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then, you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And then, two more 
passages. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. And finally, shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Now, that's group one. Now we're going to do group two. And group two has to do with the wrath of God. So that's our problem, love of God versus wrath of God. So here we go for group two. Do you want me to go? Yeah, that's right. I'll start this one, okay. Uh, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, um, kudos to your pastor. Uh, He is being much kinder to you than I would have been. Um, I was going to have about 20 minutes worth of verses to read here. Uh, Section 1, all these passages that have to do with the love of God. Section 2, all these passages that have to do with the wrath of God. Also, Uh, I was going to not have any references attached to them. Your pastor decided to attach references to them. So he is much kinder than I am. But what would have been obvious after spending 20 minutes reading these passages was that all the passages that I had listed dealing with the love of God came from the Old Testament. And all the passages that I have listed dealing with the wrath of God came from the New Testament. And so in my blog post, I make this observation, and that is that it looks like we have a significant problem. How do we reconcile the God of love in the Old Testament with the God of wrath in the New Testament? That's the question. And so, you know, one obvious answer would be, let's get rid of the New Testament and just have the Old Testament. So... um, that answer will, probably won't fly with most people, but... Uh, that was a I, great way of flipping that on its head. That was, so I, I should rewrite the question now. I tried my best, yeah. But uh, I think that the first point that I want to make here then is simply that I don't buy the premise of the question. Uh, the premise of the question suggests that all of a sudden, when you go from the last page of Malachi to the first page of Matthew, all of a sudden, God gets gen- gentler and kinder. And I just don't see that happening. And in fact, uh, I think I could read a, uh, I I think I could write a 365-day devotional book uh, solely consisting of passages having to do with the wrath of God from the New Testament. Uh, I won't do it, uh, but I don't think it would be a big seller. But in any case, um, that's how I would uh, initially, I think, uh, deal with that that question. 
One other thing that I might just mention here before we go on and, and, and nuance this a little bit more. Uh, one of my heroes in the Christian faith is a, a second century bishop um, of uh, Lyon. His name is Irenaeus, a second century bishop of a place called Lugdunum, now called Lyon. Uh, as far as I know, this is the only picture we have of him. Um, that's supposed to be funny, by the way. Uh, they didn't have, okay, whatever. All right, so I, I tried my best. Anyway, uh, in a couple of books that Irenaeus wrote, one called Against Heresies and another uh, called the, um, uh, the one that I have there, The Proof of the Apostolic Preaching, um, Irenaeus deals with some of these questions. And I want to read you a, a, a paragraph from Irenaeus. It's a bit tough slogging, but I'll try to unpack it after I read it. Here's what he says. Inasmuch then, as in both Testaments, there is the same righteousness of God displayed when God takes vengeance, in the one case, indeed, typically, temporarily, and more moderately, but in the other, really, enduringly, and more rigidly, for the fire is eternal, and the wrath of God which shall be revealed from heaven from the face of our Lord against those who do evil entails a heavier punishment on those who incur it. Now, what Irenaeus is saying there is that in the Old Testament, we have a lot of places where God carries out punishment and, and, and does this smiting, um, to use the old King James language. But when you come to the New Testament, if you really do the comparison, the ones in the New Testament are more harsh, more real, and they are more enduring. In the Old Testament, God carried out a punishment and that was it. But in the New Testament, all of a sudden, hell gets thrown into the mix. And now we have to fear not just someone who kills the body, but someone who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In fact, as someone um, I read just a, a, a little while ago said, if it were not for Jesus, if it were not for Jesus, Christianity would have no doctrine of hell. He's the one who gives that to us. And so Irenaeus points up this idea that in many ways, when we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the New Testament even becomes harsher in many ways. There are more demands on the disciples, and there are more expectations of how to live the Christian life. And there are more severe punishments in the New Testament than there even are in the Old Testament. I've been talking a while. If you want to interject and say something here. No, that's, um, that's great. So you're showing that, that there is a consistency on, on that side of the equation. How about on the other side of the, the consistency, on the, the faithfulness, the loving kindness, the, the graciousness? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we do see those more common in the New Testament. But can you comment on the connection between those as well? Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're, they're both very evident in, in both Testaments. But for sure, what I see happening in the New Testament, and this again is where John Golden Gay's comment com comes in, 
and that is all those promises about the, um, about the covenant, about, about faithfulness, about goodness and, and love, and, and even the hint of the possibility of eternal salvation. All those come to fruition in the New Testament embodied in the person of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there really wasn't much of a hope of life beyond the grave. Uh, there's one psalm in particular where the psalmist says something to God like this. He says, um, if you want to keep, keep getting praised, O God, well, remember that if I'm dead and my tongue lies in the dust, I can't give you any more praises. So if you want to keep getting praised, keep me alive. Uh, there's not much in the Old Testament in terms of a really super big hope in the resurrection. But all of a sudden, you come to the New Testament, and there's Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. And even if he dies, he will live again. And so there's much, uh, there, there is an embodied hope in the New Testament that's not there in the old, uh, old for sure. That's great. I really appreciate you bringing that up because it actually leads a little bit into something we're going to talk about next week. Um, and, and I think it's one of the challenges that exists in, um, in sort of the modern, especially the Western world church, where there's an emphasis not just more upon the New Testament and the Old Testament, but also upon the, um, the feel-good, comforting, yes. God's always about love, and there is no other side of the coin right. on there. They, we've kind of removed or divorced or ignored yes. this, this sense of justice and, and, and the wrath of God mm -hmm. that exists. And it's led to uh, a different type of uh, theology and uh, in Christian definition of the term Christianity mm -hmm. within the modern church. We're going to talk more about that next week, actually, how culture reads and understands uh, some of these things. So yeah, it's helpful yeah. this week to have you drawing this connection between what is sometimes difficult to read and hear in the Old Testament and saying, no, no, there's, there, there's a consistent thread that runs through that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he is loving. He is kind. He is gracious. But there's also a justice. There's yes. also a time when, uh, when things will be set right and they will not be ignored. Yeah, they will not yeah. go un, unaddressed. Yes, yes. And, and what happens also is, is that uh, sometimes uh, there'll be some um, preachers or some very popular figures out there who will try to um, squeeze the whole Bible into a, their own kind of little mold. And there's a whole movement out there now um, I can't give it a name, but, the, but the, the basic premise of this movement is that God is completely nonviolent. He never does anything in terms of, of, of um, uh, punishing the wicked. He, there may be a judgment, but that judgment is not uh, punitive. It doesn't punish. It doesn't, it doesn't reward evil for what evil is. And they spend a lot of time with trying to take the entire Bible and and squeeze it into that mold. And you, you just can't do it. Uh, when, if you try to remove all the violent passages away from the Bible or try to explain them in some other way, you're pulling on a thread that will eventually unravel the entire, entire Bible. Also, one of the things that I wanted to do here uh, in terms of making a point on this is that um, for us, this is a problem. 
You know, I mean, I mean uh, we, we don't want a God who punishes. We don't want a God who is violent. We, we, we don't like those scenes, uh, perhaps maybe in Revelation, for, for example, where there is this punishment of the wicked. But I want to read to you uh, just one representative passage from Revelation 19. And I want you to notice the way this passage flows. So this is uh, John uh, telling us about a, a, a scene that he witnesses. Uh, and this comes after the enemies of God have been punished and destroyed. And listen to what he says. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Let me just stop there for a second. There's a passage early in Revelation. There's a scene there where there are martyrs in heaven. And... They're under the very throne of God, as it were, and they call out and they say, how long, O Lord, is it going to be before you avenge our blood, before you pay back to those who took our lives what they deserve? And what doesn't happen is that Gabriel doesn't come along and say, shh, we don't pray those kinds of prayers up here. This is a new day. This is a new age. We don't do that. No, the angel comes along and says, wait. We're just waiting for the rest of your number to be fulfilled. And that's and now, in Revelation 19, the fulfillment takes place. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke goes from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God almighty reigns. For us, when... God executes judgments on the wicked when, when he punishes, when he becomes violent. That becomes a, a time for us to ask questions. How could God be like that? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the way through, whenever God punishes the wicked, that is always an occasion for the saints of God to praise him for his judgments. We ask questions they worship. And they, I think, set the model for what our attitude ought to be in these circumstances. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Maybe ask a bit of a, a related follow-up, not really a follow-up, sure. but a related question yeah. as, uh, as we head into our, our last one here a little bit. So as we, we think about this idea of, of suffering, of, of judgment, um, of the wrath of God, one question that uh, goes through my mind every Easter as I sit down to write uh, Easter message, particularly my Good Friday message, is something along the lines of this. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die 
such a violent death. There are much more merciful ways to <laughs> kill somebody <laughs> if you want to kill somebody. Yes. But as we walk through that story on Good Friday, it is a brutally drawn out and painful, violent process. Yeah. yeah. How do we answer that one? Oh, good, good question. And I thank you for asking it after I ask you to ask it. Uh, <laughs> um, I ask it too. <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, I think this is a, a pretty important thing here uh, to ask this question. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die such a violent death? Uh, why did he even have to die at all, uh, much less uh, uh, the great suffering and the, and the violence attached to it? Um, I, run, I want to read a, a couple of quotations from you to begin to answer that question. One of them comes from a lady named Serene Jones. And um, keep in mind as, as, we read, as, we, as we read this quotation from her, she is the president of Union Theological Seminary uh, in New York City, uh, which uh, has been around for um, coming close up to 200 years. Uh, for one time, for a long time, it was a Presbyterian seminary, and then became disaffiliated. But just before Easter this year, there was an interview that a, a, appeared in the New York Times. A guy named Nicholas Kristoff was interviewing her, and here's what she said: "Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather." who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. Now, this is the president of a seminary. Uh, by the way, she also um, indicated that she, does, she wasn't a big fan of the whole Easter story either. She doesn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead physically and, and literally. So there's all kinds of other things that occurred there. But nevertheless, she is a kind of a spokesman for a, for a, for a whole uh, movement of people out there who deny, first of all, that God had anything to do with the death of Jesus. That whenever Jesus died on the cross, that was simply some unfortunate accident that happened to him, and somehow or other, God uh, turned this unfortunate event into something that had a silver lining attached to it. Uh, just a very um, weird view in complete contrast to the historic Christian teaching on the death of Christ. And then, at the risk of uh, uh, raising some uh, hackles here, I want to give you one more quotation. And uh, this comes from Walter Rauschenbusch. Anyone ever heard of him? He's one of our North American Baptist uh, forebears uh, who did some tremendous work when it came to the whole area of the social gospel, but was very, very liberal uh, in his uh, theology. And um, just one quotation here where he's talking about a theory, and this theory is what we refer to as penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for our sins. He substituted for us, and by his death, he paid the penalty for our sins. Here's what Rauschenbusch says. This theory raises unanswerable questions and in some respects offends our Christian convictions. How can it satisfy justice to have an innocent one die 
in place of the guilty. How can God pay an equivalent to himself? If the debt due to God has been paid by the death of Christ, how can it any longer be an act of grace on the part of God to forgive sin? These questions shock our Christian feeling. This is where we get when we try to formulate the relations between God and us on the basis of law and in forensic terms. It ends in wiping out the love and mercy of God, our most essential Christian conviction. So this is from Rauschenbusch, you know, 100 years or so um, ago. Today, there are many modern advocates for this idea as well, that, that we don't need the death of Christ to, be, to pay a penalty for our sins or to provide uh, forgiveness, and that the whole thing could not have been planned by God. I'll throw out some names. You may have heard of them. Uh, Brian Zond. He says that if we believe in a God who would require Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins, we are believing in a monster God, a God who is monstrous in his character. Um, add to that voices like Gregory Boyd and Bruxy Cavey uh, in Toronto. But I think that there's some real problems with that. I mean, huge problems. So I want to just read you um, four passages here which deal with this um, in great, I think, um, force and significance. John 10, 17 to 18. Jesus says this. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus says that God is the one who gave him even the command, as it were, to carry out this act of redemption for humankind. And he did it in obedience to the Father. Not as an unwilling victim, but as a voluntary sacrifice for our sins. And then, when you look at the preaching of the early church in the book of Acts, they emphasize this big time. Acts 2.23. This man, that is Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts chapter 3, again, Peter is preaching here. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. And then, and this comes in a prayer in Acts 4, the um, saints of God pray to God and say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, 
they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So two important things about the death of Christ. First of all, it was willed by God, orchestrated by God. He was the one behind it. And Jesus was not an unwilling victim. He voluntarily sacrificed his life. And he sacrificed that life in order to provide forgiveness for our sins by paying the penalty for them. Um, I was telling your pastor earlier when we were talking about this that um, over the past two or three years, the two of the services that have blessed me the most have been Good Friday services. And one of the reasons is because in the world where I dwell, uh, the scholarly world, uh, uh, the group, the, the, uh, the Facebook discussion group world, I've got lots of people I'm interacting with who think, just like I told you earlier, that to believe in a God who has to sacrifice his son in order to provide forgiveness for our sins is a, is a monstrous position to come to. And, and that we cannot believe in a God like that. So what has been refreshing for me is a couple of times I have gone to a Good Friday service in the past two or three years and found a completely different spirit than what I was dwelling in during the week. Two years ago, I went to a Good Friday service, and the person leading the worship that day um, said this in a prayer. Thank you for dying for my sins, Jesus, so that I could have a relationship with God. It does not make logical sense to die for people caught in sin, but you knew that we couldn't make ourselves right on our own. You know we needed you to go before us. On some levels I understand, but I also don't. How come there was no other way? Why did Jesus have to drink the cup of your wrath? It was to defeat sin and death, to show that life overcomes death. Jesus became a man of sorrows when he took on all of our pain, sin, and shame, every evil action, murder, theft, greed, every impure thought, every selfish act, every hurtful word and blasphemy, he took all of this on and suffered God's wrath so that he could make a way for us. And then, just a couple weeks ago, I was at the Good Friday service here, and I appreciated so much the songs we sang. I appreciated your pastor's message where he reiterated again and again that Christ's death was a penalty for our sins. And I so was thankful that we sang that fairly new worship song to me. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. I'm so thankful that that teaching that understanding is still, still so prevalent in our churches and that there is a resistance, a huge resistance to this new wave of teaching that seems to be overtaking some sectors of even the evangelical uh, Christian church. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, and, and we're going to head to communion in just a moment here. And I think
think it serves as a, as a wonderful reminder and, uh, and lead in into that time. So I wonder if, if I could, if I could just say a word of prayer for us as we wrap up this time and, and then head towards the communion table with our minds already mm. now set upon the fact that Jesus Christ came voluntarily according to the will of God, according to the plan laid before him, the path set before him, that he walked uh, willingly to the cross to pay the price for our sins and, uh, and how seriously God takes our sins. Mm. And in his loving kindness, he looks at us who have received Christ and welcomes us into his presence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the teaching we can receive today. I pray that each of us here who, um, who may have different questions about how do, we, how do we enter into certain parts of your revealed uh, word and how do we understand some of the difficult things that we read in scripture? How do we reconcile different aspects of your character? Thank God that we would find a way today through some of these answers to, uh, to have a, a deeper understanding but also a deeper faith in knowing that, that you, Lord, that you are the one who can find that, that as, as it was said, full of grace and full of truth, that you are, are not half and half or, or teetering back and forth between these things, but you are full and complete in both of these things, that, that you do not leave things unpunished, un, undealt with, like they don't matter. Jesus Christ is the evidence that they matter, but that you lovingly give us a way that we can be eternally freed, uh, redeemed, and with you. And we thank you for that, Lord.